Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Andre Duplat. Andre was responsible for delivering the letter to Frederick Henry that informed him that he needed to rush to his half-brother's bedside because Maurice of Orange was dying. Thankfully for him, Frederick Henry didn't shoot the messenger. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go by now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below. But now, let's listen to episode 41 of The Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to The Thirty Years' War. Last time we concluded our examination of the Emperor's policy vis-a-vis the Edict of Restitution. That edict was, we deduced... Ferdinand's effort to bring peace to the empire on his own terms, tempered and modified by the fundamentalists in his ear, as well as his own uncompromising beliefs. The result was something few, save for the most militant Catholics, could be happy with, largely because they saw the potential for dissension which the edict would cause. We concluded that far from bringing peace, the edict virtually guaranteed that the empire would be divided and Germans would be anxious for their rights and privileges just as a new foreign potentate, the King of Sweden, was in a position to intervene. Although it might appear natural to pick up this story from where we left off, while telling that aforementioned story, we've mostly skirted around some very important related issues and conflicts, the most important being the Dutch War against the Spanish and the Mantuan War in North Italy. Both of these conflicts dramatically impacted the Habsburg capacity to defend its interests and project its power, not just in Europe but across the world. The war with the Dutch made Spain weaker, which meant less help available for the Emperor, while the war in Mantua in northern Italy weakened both Vienna and Madrid at precisely the wrong time because it pulled men and materials in far too many directions. In this episode we launch into the Dutch segment of that story to examine, after so many sombre years, the incredible fortunes of the Dutch under the leadership of their new stadtholder, Frederick Henry. Assuming leadership of the Dutch Republic's army and navy just as the beloved Maurice was dying and Breda was about to fall in 1625, Frederick Henry would recoup his losses and somehow cement his legacy as the Republic's most successful leader yet. Let's see how he did it and what he achieved and what challenges he faced as I take you to the Dutch Republic in 1625. Frederick Henry was to serve as the leader of the Netherlands for 22 eventful years, but the bleak early months of his service in 1625 must be considered a baptism by fire of the First Order. In April 1625, Frederick Henry was summoned to the bedside of Maurice, 
the dying stadtholder of the Dutch provinces. Maurice, Frederick Henry's half-brother, had urged the 45-year-old Frederick Henry to take a wife and settle down already to secure the future of the House of Orange. Frederick Henry obliged. He married into the court of the dispossessed Elector Palatine, interestingly enough. Amalia von Soms was the daughter of one of Frederick V's late officials. She was to serve the new stadtholder with love, loyalty and several children. Exactly what a military and naval leader with a vaguely defined job description required. Only a few days after a quiet wedding service, Maurice of Orange died. Two months later, Breda, a fortress on the frontier of Brabant, which guarded the roads to Utrecht and Amsterdam, fell to the Spanish. The Dutch people, shorn of their beloved Maurice, a man of Dutch as well as European reputation, having earned plaudits as a skilled tactician and military innovator, were then struck low by news of the loss of Breda. Breda had been one of Maurice's most famed successes after all, and losing it just after losing its conqueror cannot have been an easy series of developments to swallow. But the Dutch people had endured far worse. Frederick Henry needed his people to persevere. Further afield outside of the troubling local bulletins, there was cause enough for the new stadtholder to be anxious. The Dutch war with the Spanish, a conflict rooted several generations before, appeared destined to widen, and to engulf Germany, Scandinavia, and Britain with it. While it was a year of defeat and darkness, in other respects 1625 promised much for the future of the Dutch Republic, as new opportunities presented themselves. The events leading to that year had been troubling indeed. The Austrian Habsburgs, supported by the Spanish and Bavarians, had overrun the Rhine and the Palatinate, had put down the Bohemian Revolt, and had installed a triumphant, Catholicizing regime in its wake. The Spanish had gained much by their intervention and now clung to a more secure position on the Rhine than they had ever before held. The German war had spilled over into the Netherlands, most notably in 1623, when forces under the command of Ernst of Mansfeld challenged Ambrogio Spinola's siege of Bergen op Zoom. There was great potential for further spillover, thanks to Madrid's incessant demands on Vienna to become properly involved in the war with the Dutch, demands which increased in frequency as the 1620s progressed. Throughout these years of Habsburg victory, the French, English and Germans had been quiescent. In London, a Spanish marriage was under negotiation, as King James sought desperately to reach an agreement whereby Prince Charles would be wed to a Spanish princess. In France, though a formal defensive alliance had been concluded, it was difficult to believe in any likelihood of French support, so long as consistent Huguenot rebellions racked the French administration, then coming under Cardinal Richelieu's control. Elsewhere, there seemed a shortage of promises or commitments which might have persuaded hesitant powers to get involved. The Scandinavian kingdoms had great potential, but neither Denmark nor Sweden was content to enter the war in Germany alone. Thus, to ensure the containment of the war in Germany, to isolate and disadvantage the Spanish, and perhaps also to liberate themselves from the burden of maintaining the exiled Palatine family, Dutch policy called for the formation of an alliance between parties possessing mutual interests and anxieties. By 1625, despite the grave situation that the Republic faced, circumstances had finally aligned to make this alliance a reality. And this story is familiar to us now. The Hague Alliance was the result of these agreements and favourable circumstances, 
and while this coalition was destined to disintegrate upon the defeat of Denmark, it seemed to promise a great deal at first. During the summer of 1625, as the Dutch grappled with the successive losses of Maurice and of Breda, King Charles formalised the war between England and Spain. By the end of the year, an Anglo-Dutch naval expedition would be launched against Spain, and Denmark would confirm its position in the ambitious new alliance, with additional promises of French financial support forthcoming too. These developments boded well, but while the Dutch proved adept at weathering the storm, efforts at cooperation left much to be desired. The leading lights of the Hague Alliance, King Christian IV of Denmark, Christian of Brunswick and Ernst of Mansfeld, were defeated in succession over 1626. More troubling was the English and French retreat from the commitments they had made to the alliance, the French pleading Huguenot revolts at home, and King Charles pleading a lack of money and an uncooperative parliament. The Habsburgs seemed immune to these woes, as Ferdinand crushed uprisings in his hereditary lands and consolidated his authority there. The emperor had even managed to pay off his considerable debts to Maximilian of Bavaria, and the policy of confiscating rebel land was expanded as allies were enriched and enemies exiled. By 1628, it was apparent that the Habsburgs would again be victorious in Germany, and the employment of Albrecht of Wallenstein demonstrated the extent of the Holy Roman Emperor's new powers, fragile though they were. Closer to home, the Dutch saw their economic life threatened by an invigorated Spanish naval blockade, as Dutch ships were blocked from entering major ports and attacks by privateers increased, driving up shipping and insurance costs. One of the Republic's greatest success stories had been its ability to leverage its geographic position in Europe and become the dominant fulcrum of Atlantic and Baltic trade. North Sea herrings, Baltic grain, local cheeses provided essential dietary needs, complemented by Dutch entrepreneurship in Scandinavian resource exploitation and advantageous copper and timber monopolies in Sweden. Ruthless determination, adventurism and no short of opportunism had enabled the Dutch to impede the Spanish trade in the Indies to their great benefit. The Dutch had been so successful at replacing the Spanish in the Indies trading game that the terms of the Twelve Years' Truce in 1609 had urged Dutch evacuation of this theatre as the only acceptable grounds for a peace deal. Spain had been in no position to enforce this stipulation in 1609, and the Dutch had essentially run amok in the New World, a state of affairs which had cost Madrid millions and engendered discontent in Portugal, then in a personal union with the Spanish. It was to reverse all of these negative trends that a sweeping new set of Spanish plans were implemented following the expiration of the truce in 1621. The Rhine and Maas rivers would be blockaded, extensive forts would be built in the Indies to increase their defensiveness, a trading company would be established at Seville to fight the Dutch monopoly in Baltic trade, a Spanish fleet would be docked in Antwerp, where it would target Dutch trade more effectively, and privateers from Dunkirk would be empowered and increased in the havoc they could wreak against Dutch interests in home waters. A focus on cutting the Dutch lifeblood, that of trade, was believed to be more sensible and less expensive than resuming the land war, as Spignola had requested. For a time then, the years immediately after the expiration of the truce contained scant events of much consequence, Indeed, with the exception of Breda, the Spanish attempted no vast, time-consuming, expensive sieges of the kind that had been synonymous with the Eighty Years' War, or the war between the Spanish and Dutch, before 1609. 
Profound brains firmly trust that this is the only means to make the water snails of Holland pull their horns into their shells, whence they will be pricked with a pin. This was the judgment of Antwerp's newspaper in spring 1622, echoed by a letter which that newspaper carried that purported to be a resident of The Hague, who said that The ships of the Flemish coast harm us in the apple of our eye. If this continues, our nails will be clipped to the flesh. Encouraging the residents of the loyal Spanish Netherlands to venture into the seas and fight their rebellious neighbours, the Brussels administration appealed to their citizens' thirst for wealth, arguing that Some seamen have become so rich with booty that they can henceforth live as hardy and wealthy as lords, so that the arrival of stout fellows daily increases. Thus began arguably the most effective arm of the Spanish war against the Dutch, the employment of privateers from Dunkirk to sever and chip away at the commercial business of the Dutch Republic. With expertise in traversing shallow waters, which the Dutch had not yet mastered, these Dunkirkers were to be a significant thorn in the side of the Republic for as long as the Spanish could maintain the pressure on land. The silver lining for the Dutch in the midst of these far-sighted Spanish plans for their destruction was the fact that, while Madrid planned for a war to the last extremity, such a commitment was the last thing their strained coffers could afford. His allies had been most disappointing, and the reasons for despair had been legion, but once the storm had passed, Frederick Henry found that his old enemy had lost a great portion of her durability and strength. He assigned himself the task of taking advantage of Spain's weaknesses and wresting the initiative from Spaniola's tired hands. It was a position he would not relinquish for the remainder of his life. By the late 1620s, the startling fact was that while the Holy Roman Emperor had never been more supreme in his triumphant powers, the King of Spain saw his regime veering towards the abyss. While it would be upheld in Madrid as a triumph, the capture of Breda in June 1625, following a ten-month siege, was in reality more of a Pyrrhic victory. Even as the Habsburg dynasty seemed supreme, by peeling back the surface layers, one could discern that all was not well in the Castilian monarchy. The core root of the problem was economic. During 1621-27, arguably the most dominant military years for the Spanish in Europe, taxation doubled and borrowing increased by 500%. The expense of the Dutch War, a major act of which had been the seizure of Breda, had also ballooned in expense. Madrid was forced to more than double its expenditure in the Netherlands, from 1.5 million to 3.5 million ducats. Even the cost of equipping and defending the critically important Atlantic fleet, which had responsibilities for protecting and chaperoning the treasure fleets from the Americas, had grown to 1 million ducats, a price soon to increase still further with the coming catastrophes and Dutch victories in the region. The sheer severity of the Spanish woes prevented Madrid from coordinating any advanced strategy with Brussels after the death of Maurice of Orange and the loss of Breda sapped Dutch morale. Further problems followed. While the English failed to pursue the war with much vigour after the failed Cadiz expedition in late 1625, England's declaration of war on Spain meant that Spanish vessels couldn't rest and recuperate in English waters on their way to the Netherlands. They'd have to run the gauntlet, whether they came from the New World or from Spain, which granted the awaiting Dutch vessels a major advantage. 
Advantageous though it was, the Spanish managed to make remarkable progress in the local naval war, especially considering the lack of direct investment in the theatre. The key to Spanish success in this regard was the metal and ingenuity of those aforementioned privateers from Dunkirk, who we encountered before. In autumn 1625, the Dunkirk privateers were granted a wealth of opportunities to strike at the Dutch directly thanks to the ill-fated Cadiz expedition. In regular circumstances, the Dutch would have kept Dunkirk under a tight blockade, but with their vessels cooperating beside the English, the net around this bane of the Dutch was momentarily loosened, and the effect was immediate. Within two weeks in October, the privateers had sent more than 150 fishing vessels and 20 protection boats to the bottom of the sea. They also captured 1,400 sailors, forced the Dutch to employ costly convoys to protect their investments, in the herring fisheries. The total cost for the Dutch during the most intensive portions of this privateer campaign ran into the tens of millions, and it represents a forgotten success story of the hardy South Netherlands inhabitants. Impressive though the victory was, the tide was plainly moving against Brussels in other theatres. For the Dutch then, the Hague Alliance was immensely beneficial, and the weight of the challenge soon began to tell in Spain. We must bear in mind that even as Brussels urged Madrid to send more money, men and materials, Spanish soldiers were on hand along the Rhine. They had responsibilities to tend to in Italy, and they had to police vulnerable possessions in the Americas. It was only inevitable that with so many fronts to guard, Spanish power would be spread too thin. In early February 1627, King Philip IV encapsulated the decline by declaring bankruptcy. This had been the culmination of several years' worth of economic somersaulting, as Madrid took out loans from credit based on the income that they expected to make in the near future. The problem for Spain was thus similar to that faced by Wallenstein, a lack of readily available cash. The Spanish went to extreme measures just to keep the lights on, but by forcing the balance sheet so deeply into the red, the Genoese bankers upon whom Spain relied grew ever more nervous. The bankruptcy declaration did nothing to ease the genuine fears that those poor Genoese bankers had about Spain's liquidity problems, and it was apparent that loans would be much harder to come by in the future. Thus, Madrid relied upon a new source of income, the converted Muslims and Jews who had remained in the country after the earlier expulsions, as well as opportunistic Portuguese banking syndicates. Again, these loans were based upon the promise of income from the usual Spanish sources, which meant that any severing of these sources would be tantamount to disaster. Just how vulnerable to sudden fluctuations Spanish finances actually were became painfully evident within less than two years. By 1627, though, King Philip IV and his favourite, Olivares, believed they had little choice. The war against the Dutch and the campaign in Germany had to be pursued to its logical conclusion. The hope, as we will see, was that the newly triumphant emperor, having quashed the Danes, would intercede on the behalf of Spain, perhaps paying Madrid back for the recent bailout that Ferdinand had received during the early heady days of the Bohemian Revolt. We're going to continue this story of the Spanish struggles in just a bit, but first I want to let you know about something that's really exciting, and if you didn't listen to the previous news episodes, you might not know about it. Basically, when diplomacy fails, Zach Twomley... I'm releasing a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. The first installment is going to be called Matchlock and the Embassy, 
And it's a pretty large book and I'm really, really excited to deliver it to you. It launches officially on the 15th of September, but you, yes you, can get this first book absolutely free. The ebook, that is. Super easy to do so. All you have to do is head over to the Facebook group and there'll be a link posted at the top of that group once that ebook is available to you all. When will that ebook be available? Well, I estimate that within a few days, perhaps on the 27th of August, Friday the 27th of August, that is, you will be able to download that ebook from our group. So keep an eye out for that. I'll be sure to announce it in the usual places. And I'll probably be releasing an actual episode here to basically announce it officially. But if you hadn't listened to the previous news episodes, now you have been warned. The reason why this is very exciting, not just because I'm breaking into the self-publishing historical fiction theatre, which I've wanted to do for so long, but it also ties in really well with Patreon. If you pay a fiver a month, you'll get all of the ebooks from Matchlock free, no matter how many there are, and currently I have 24 books planned. So yeah, it's not going to be a small series by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be big, and if you want access to all of it, make sure to head on over to Patreon, or of course just buy them as they come out. But either way, get your free copy to see what this series is going to be like. Only people in the group will get this free copy, and I might make some exceptions for people that really hate Facebook, but let's try and keep it simple. I have enough going on right now. (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to the episode. Only in 1625, Count Olivares had declared with apparently boundless confidence that God is Spanish and fights for our nation these days. But less than a year after this statement, it was clear that God had delivered the Dutch rebels and not their Spanish masters. The causes of the decline in Spain were multi-layered, but rather than address them, Madrid sought other explanations for the recent misfortune. The defeats were not signs of Spanish weakness, but that Spain had forsaken God. If it were to repent and remove its many sins, God would be obliged to smile upon Spain once more. If the explanation was grounded more in superstition than in fact, it should be added that such sins were not hard for any self-aware Spanish official to find. Contemporaries commented with some alarm on the rise in corruption and the lack of sexual morality even among some clergy and of the religious hypocrisy within the church fathers. Scandals regarding embezzlement, waste and idleness focused more on the individual responsible and less on the system that had facilitated it. In addition, it was easy to blame other countries for their corrupting influence. One singled out the troubling habit of men deciding to wear their hair long, a contagion from England as a symptom of the Spanish illness. Purge the illness and the victim would be cured and make a full recovery. But where to start? Getting to the bottom of the Spanish plight and employing officials brave enough to initiate genuine reform from the top down was impossible so long as the country remained locked into a succession of conflicts. The most pressing of these conflicts was the Dutch War, though Madrid would involve itself in North Italy from late 1628, an act which stupefied the aged veteran Spignola, who had been drip-fed aid from Spain for several years. Spignola had himself been a great fortunate boon for the Spanish, and before the conclusion of the Twelve Years' Truce, he had worked hard to seize several key fortress towns. These were all retaken by Frederick Henry between 1626-28, to and Spain could offer nothing in response. Had Spaniola been empowered to mount sufficient operations against the demoralised Dutch following the fall of Breda, 
then an impressive triumph or at least a more favourable peace, could have been wrested from that wretched corner of Europe at long last. Alas, though, it was not to be. The Dutch were still hurting, though, and their people had long grown tired of the state of war which drove up taxes, reduced their security, and had brought nothing but gloom since the expiration of the truce in 1621. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do me the honor of believing, wrote one Dutch official to Cardinal Richelieu in spring 1626, that never were we in a more critical and hazardous condition. It is more than time for you to stretch out your hand. This request would be heeded by Richelieu, but it would also be complicated by the outbreak of an untimely Anglo-French war, as we'll see. In the event, Dutch opinion in 1626 would soon be buoyed by better news. Frederick Henry celebrated the birth of a son in May of that year, and the town of Oldenzaal, a centre of ammunition and stores, was captured in August of that year. But evidently, an atmosphere of uneasiness was present in the Republic. This mood was what Frederick Henry set himself the task of shaking by the accumulation of triumphs which would put steel back into the Dutch people, a mission made that much easier by the virtual collapse of Spanish resistance from 1628. As per the terms of their 1624 alliance, the French had been obliged to provide 1 million florins a year to the Dutch, which amounted to 7% of the Dutch Republic's expenditure. These subsidies were critically important for helping the Dutch get a leg up on their Spanish enemy, and it made good strategic sense for Richelieu to approve such large gifts, since the Dutch had an integral part to play in the great act to come. Unfortunately for the coordination of Franco-Dutch strategy, the plan was complicated by the eruption of a new front, an Anglo-French war, which centred on the French crown siege of La Rochelle. With wanton foolishness, the Duke of Buckingham forced the conflict into being, and with wanton weakness, King Charles allowed it to proceed. The conflict was plagued by problems from the start for Buckingham, and it stripped the English of what little military prestige they still had, after so many years of failed peacemaking, and a lacklustre commitment of soldiers to fight for Frederick V. On the island of Ray, just off the shore from La Rochelle, 
the English learned firsthand how difficult and complex siege operations far from home had become. Utterly failing in his quest to relieve the Huguenots, Buckingham returned home after this dismal failure, only to fall victim to an assassin's bullet. The Anglo-French episode also complicated matters for the Dutch, since the aforementioned letter to Cardinal Richelieu requesting that the wily French minister would stretch out his hand was answered by a request for Dutch aid against the Huguenots. In the initial phase of the siege before the English had arrived, the ramifications of crushing Protestants in foreign lands was damning enough for the Calvinist Republican Dutch, but once the English involved themselves, it became a question of choosing between the French ally of 1624 or a partner in the Hague Alliance. In the event, the Dutch chose neither. Her sailors refused to man the naval expedition to La Rochelle to fight against the Huguenots, and at the same time, Anglo-Dutch relations began to sour over competition in new markets overseas, a sign of things to come. 1627 had not been all about the complexities of Anglo-Dutch and Franco-Dutch diplomacy, though. Frederick Henry made great progress in his methodical reduction of the outlying fortresses in Spanish hands. Having seized Aldenzaal in August 1626, he turned his attention to Grawl the following July. Grawl, now known as Groenlo, was a vital hub of trade and guarded the marshy plains along the southeastern Dutch border with the Holy Roman Empire. Although small in size, Grawl was a formidable fortress, positioned as though on an island and surrounded by a deep moat that was regularly fed by the low water table. Adopting a tactic harnessed by Spaniola at Breda, Frederick Henry made extensive use of long, sprawling lines of circumvallation 16 kilometres in length to prevent any escape for the Spanish garrison within. The strict enforcement of the siege did the trick, and Grawl surrendered in mid-August, handing Frederick Henry his most impressive victory yet, and the first truly significant Dutch victory since the expiration of the Twelve Years' Truce. By 1629, the Dutch were able to afford an army of 70,000 professionals, backed by 50,000 militia and a navy manned by 8,500 sailors. The rising power of the Dutch navy, inflated by its propensity for hoarding timber stores and adding consistently to its trade fleets in 1621, was necessary if the Dutch were to retain their hold on the Baltic. We will recall that the Habsburg scheme for severing this Dutch monopoly misfired, but not before the Dutch and all of Scandinavia had been given a significant scare. After Stralsund stubbornly refused to yield, it became apparent to Wallenstein and gradually to Madrid that the Baltic could not at this point be tamed. Thanks to the combined power of Austrian and Spanish Habsburg force, as well as the overwhelming threat to any regional power which Wallenstein's thousands represented, both Olivares in Madrid and Ferdinand in Vienna had been able to dream big and imagine a continent overcome by their influence, with a presence in all the vital seas. The Baltic design proved a step too far, but the frustration of the scheme was more than merely a temporary setback. Hasburg pretensions would never rise so far again. In the next episode, we'll resume our examination of the Spanish-Dutch War by looking at the moment when the wheels fell off, so to speak, in Madrid. With their fortunes lagging dangerously behind and the security of their investments in trouble, the Spanish turned to the Emperor for support, the man whose position they had helped to guarantee a decade before. 
The result of this appeal, as well as the strategic implications of the Dutch triumphs, will occupy us next time. But until then, my name is Zach. You've been a wonderful listener and history friend, and this has been episode 41 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.